Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. And joining me today, I'm delighted to say that we have my colleague and associate director here, Kate Smith, and also Henry Dimbleby, author of the report to the government, National Food Strategy. And we're moving into slightly unusual territory for the IFS today as we look at that food strategy and really ask the question of what it is that government should and could be doing to influence our diets and what role economic instruments, among others, might play in doing that. But perhaps we can start, if I come to you, Henry, just by asking this kind of very broad question, what's it got to do with government? There's a question I think a lot of people ask when it comes to our food. We can go out and buy what we want from the shops. We can make decisions about uh, whether we buy healthy things or unhealthy things. And I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. What are you doing? What's government doing telling us what we should be eating? Well, I think there there are two questions there. I mean, the word involved is very interesting, but well, we started, I started in the report by talking about what is the role of government at all? You know, what should government be doing? And obviously, the free market has created uh, a food system that brings us an abundance of food at a cost that would be unimaginable, uh, cheap to previous generations. And I quoted uh, an interview, recent interview with the journalist Andrew Marr, who said, who had been, he was explaining why he'd gone from being a Marxist to, to believing in free markets. And he said, you know, he'd come to realize that free markets were the most extraordinarily powerful things in delivering us all what we want. And he'd realized that controlled economies were clearly madness and could never achieve what free markets do. But the problem with markets is that they, they do two things. They create dirt uh, and they increase inequality. And his uh, view was that therefore the role of governments in addition to free markets was to clean up dirt or make sure it doesn't get uh, uh, emitted in the first place and to reduce inequality. And if you look at the food system and if you think about dirt or externalities as as you guys would, would call it, um, the, uh, when it comes to the environment, the food system is the biggest cause of the, the lack of fresh water, of the pollution of fresh water, of the drop in biodiversity, of deforestation, of overfishing. And with energy, it's one of the two biggest causes of climate change worldwide. And then if you look at the health side, and there is a question about whether you call these externalities or internalities, but the health, the food system is making us sick. And by 2035, it is estimated that the cost of treating type 2 diabetes alone is going to exceed the cost of treating all cancers. So, uh, and all and both of those things, interestingly, are uh, both of those problems visit themselves most acutely on the poorest in society. So there's also, it, it exacerbates inequalities. So the reason that government should have an interest in, in my view, in getting involved in somewhere, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about what ways in the food system, is that the food system creates a lot of dirt and exacerbates inequality. I much prefer that word dirt to externality. I think we could definitely learn in how we communicate by starting to talk about externalities as as dirt. And um, that's uh, you know, it's uh, that was a, that was an answer that um, any any aspiring economist here could have given in terms of talking about what the uh, as you say the externality effects of um, the current system are. I mean, what, what's your sort of underlying diagnosis as to 
as, as to why we have a system like that. I mean, it's not as if it has to provide us with unhealthy food. It's not as if we have to buy that unhealthy food. I mean, what is the actual... What, what, what is the market failure here, to use that economics term? Why aren't we doing what is good for us? So the, the, there were, I think there are, two, there are two feedback loops in the system that have gone wrong. On the health side, there's a very clear toxic relationship between our evolved appetite and the commercial incentives of companies. So we evolved to seek out food that was calorie-dense and... Uh, you know, high in sugar and fat and salt. And food companies, not not because they want to kill our children, not because they're evil, but they have found that it is, you know, there are 28 kinds of Kit Kat you can buy in the UK uh, and there aren't 28 kinds of broccoli. And the reason that is, is because it's just easier to sell that stuff. There's a bigger market. We seek it out. And so you could see it over time. What's happened is they have invested more resources in researching and developing and selling that to us. We've eaten more, they've sold more, and you've had this kind of vicious reinforcing circle that's kind of led to a problem where we are now swamped with foods that are killing us. On the environmental side, it's actually the lack of a feedback loop. So uh, Partha Dasgupta, the economist, Cambridge economist, in his report for the Treasury, The Economics of Biodiversity, points out that not only do we not build the cost of nature into our economic systems, in particular our food system, we actually subsidize globally the destruction of the environment by about $500 billion, which he estimates causes between 3 and $7 trillion of environmental damage. So we're actually not only not recognizing the externality, we're giving nature a negative cost. And actually, those two things, those two failures, health and the environment, while there are some areas where they interlock, they're actually separate problems, which means that the levers that government or that we recommend that government uses to solve them are different. Yeah, they're clearly, as you, as you say, two different things, although sometimes they're related, presuming it's better for the environment and for us, potentially, if we eat more vegetable rather than um, animal-based products. Yeah, so there are areas such as eating vegetables um, in, in particular is one area where there's, but also kind of in terms of what the government might want to do on, on, on food standards, on certain forms of regulation, there is that you'd want to see some kind of coordination between the Department of Health and social care and the Department for the Environment. Now, your number one recommendation in your plan, and obviously the one that got quite a lot of coverage and interest, was the introduction of a tax on um, sugar and salt. You've got a whole range of recommendations. We, We should sort of come to some of those other ones. But how important for you in the whole system of changing the way that we eat is uh, is the use of a, a of a tax to reduce sugar and salt uh, consumption? So, when I, I first did some work for government in um, with my business partner uh, John Vincent in Leon uh, way back in two thousand and thirteen, and that was on school food, uh, and that was commissioned by Michael Gove, who was then the Education Secretary, and and he said to us quite early, he said basically I can do that. There are only four things I can do as, as government. I can, I can tax things, I can subsidize things, I can compel people to do things, and I can ban things. Uh, and then he added, I can also make a speech, but I found that the other four tend to be more effective than, than speech making. 
And when we looked at this, we call it the junk food cycle, this interaction between uh, our appetite, our evolved appetite, and the profit incentives of companies. It was clear to us, and actually all of the CEOs of the food companies, pretty much all of them said, we can't do this on our own because if we, what we find is whenever we do something, the competition just move into the space and rather than solving the problem, uh, rather than uh, us selling less salty pizzas, people just go and buy them from, from someone else. So the first thing was we felt that this needed some kind of government intervention. And then the question is, what kind of government intervention do you do you put into place? And if you look at, uh, and the answer is actually you want quite a lot of things. So we, we have a kind of smorgasbord of things that cover taxes, subsidies, compelling and banning. But if you look at some people to say, well, it's about making them label things the right way, um, uh, you know, ch- changing where you can advertise, just regulations, compelling and banning. And those things tend to be quite complicated. They are gameable. So, for example, at the moment, one of the bans is advertising that's coming in in April is aisle-end advertising of unhealthy products. And already the cereal companies are working on mid-aisle, aisle-end. So they're, they're going to create displays that pop up in, with the same impact mid-aisle. So it's, a lot of that's gameable. Subsidies, people say, well, why don't you, rather than tax, why don't you subsidize fruit and veg? problem with that is that you'd be subsidizing me and and you and Kate you'd be subsidizing all our veg so it's an incredibly inefficient use of funds be very expensive uh, and therefore we settled on a tax as both the cleanest most ungameable measure but also one that could create significant um, change and there is quite a lot of evidence uh, from in particular sugary drinks taxes, that you can shift the system in that area. So that's why, in the end, you know, we kind of looked at all the various ways in which you could intervene and decided actually the only thing we thought would be would actually shift, shift the system, you know, needed to sit in the middle of all of the uh, recommendations was the tax. So let, let, let me turn to Kate at this, uh, at this point and ask, um, Kate, what, what, what do we know about the evidence on how impactful taxes can be on um, what we consume? I mean, you might want to draw uh, something from what we know about alcohol taxation, for example, as well as food. But of course, we've got the example of the fizzy drinks tax in the UK and all sorts of examples um, internationally. Yeah, I mean, as as Henry said, you know, I think tax is actually has a, a number of appealing features uh, in terms of trying to change people's behavior. So the fact that it gets around this kind of coordination failure that can exist, you know, and sort of trying to get firms to do things just off their own back. Um, it also means that it does have sort of a nice tie to the idea that actually, if there are these externalities, then actually by setting a tax kind of equal to these externalities, and that's a, that's a good way of improving outcomes. And actually, what are the again, one of the benefits relative to say banning things is that actually it means that for those people who actually you know consume a relatively small amount of chocolate every now and then, they're still able to do that without it being uh, sort of completely restricted. 
In terms of the evidence that we have on um, the impact of these, so that the taxes of the scale that Henry has kind of been talking about, which are, are much larger than really what we've seen uh, worldwide, I think it's quite exciting to think about the, the possibilities that they might have for improving diet more widely. But most of the taxes that we've seen uh, to date are sort of focused on those soft drinks or sugary drinks, which are now sort of quite commonly taxed actually by a lot of countries and cities and, and states in the US as well. Um, there are also taxes on things like confectionery has been introduced in some European countries and other sort of smaller taxes. But in terms of um, the effects, so one of the things that you would like to see is that if you introduce a tax that actually it does translate into higher prices for consumers to cre create this incentive for them to, to choose healthier options. And this is something that we do see in practice. So if you tax, you know, Coca-Cola, then Coke becomes more expensive relative to, to Diet Coke. It also does look like it has an impact on the amount that people buy as well. So we do see that purchases are, are responsive to taxes that are introduced. The extent to which they're responsive does depend on a sort of lots of different features about how the tax is introduced. It also depends on, you know, how widely applied it is. So some US cities, for example, have, have introduced these taxes on sugary drinks. And then you can get problems of sort of cross-border shopping where people just go outside the city border, but at a sort of national level, that's less of a concern. I think one of the things that's actually very interesting and, and has been a bit less well studied, um, at least in, in sort of what we know so far, is the incentives that these taxes create for firms and manufacturers to actually change the nutritional content of their products. So the incentives to do this depend quite a lot on how you design the tax. So the UK tax on soft drinks is a good example of this, where because there were two bans, where uh, uh, more sugary drinks, so those with sugar greater than eight grams per 100 milliliters, were taxed at a higher rate than those that had between five and eight grams of sugar per 100 mils. What this has actually done is sort of really encouraged quite a lot of manufacturers to reduce the sugar content of the drinks that they're providing. And so this suggests that actually it's important to think about the almost the nitty gritty of these policy details, because actually that can sort of create these effects that on the one hand might be positive because actually we're sort of getting this potential benefit from the policy that we might not have thought about. But also, if we don't think through all the incentives that the policies are creating, you can also get unintended consequences in the other direction as well. So what one of the impacts of the way that, as I understand it, the fizzy drinks tax was created is that there's been a big incentive for firms to get down to, say, seven grams per 100 milliliters, but not much incentive to go below seven. And so we, we've had a sort of positive effect down to there, but then we're a bit stuck and there's not much else happening. Is that fair? Precisely. So that because the current tax basically creates an incentive you to jump just below the eight gram threshold or just below the five gram threshold, but not to go any further. That's not a requirement of the way that we tax. You know, there are ways to design these taxes that would encourage you to reduce the, the content of you know, the sugar content, the salt content in other cases, you know, continuously. So sort of encouraging that across the range of nutrients in the product, which, you know, would be actually a potentially more effective way at uh, encouraging the provision of healthier products on our shelves. So, so Henry, as I said, that was um, your number one recommendation, the first recommendation that, that a, 
appeared in the in 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 the part of your plan which is entitled "Escape the Junk Food Cycle and Protect the NHS." Where have I heard "Protect the NHS" before? What else in terms of that? Um, you know, get, getting away from the consumption of poor quality food. What what else is it that you're thinking that government and indeed the rest of us should be doing? If I can, I just want to add one thing on the tax. There are a couple of quite which for this audience might be quite interesting about the tax. Uh, one is the idea of, as you will know, the idea of hypothecated taxes uh, is generally thought to be a nonsense by uh, fiscal experts. But we actually hypothecate, we suggest the hypothecation of some of the 2.9 to 3.5 billion of this tax towards schemes that directly subsidize healthy food in the poorest segments of society, which apparently, uh, according to tax experts we consulted, is the one area where you are allowed to hypothecate because you're basically tipping the incentive. So you're both making the reformulation the top end less attractive and then uh, putting in a subsidy on the bottom end. The other thing was an obs- a political observation that I had about your general government policy versus how you operate in a in a business. So in a business, you, you're constantly testing what your pro- proposition looks like, what your pricing looks like. And because it's a complex system, you don't really know what's going to stick and what's not going to stick. And in the tax world, you spend all this capital. You know, George Osborne with the sugary drinks levy was toing and froing with Treasury, trying to create the perfect thing. Camilla Cavendish had done a lot of work in number 10. And then they, rather than do a write around on it, they put it in in the budget, which meant you didn't have to sign it off across government. So they avoided all of that uh, of that problem. And they kind of collapsed over the line. And we've still got the same sugary drinks levy, which, as you say, has done some things. There are quite there is a kind of backing up of drinks against the various areas. And it's almost impossible to do what you should do, really, which is which is tweak it. But I don't know what you do about that. I think it's quite an interesting, obviously, having more governments worldwide to learn about other people doing your experiments helps. But I think it seems to be one of the fundamental problems with trying to introduce taxes of this nature. Um, but the, the other, to answer your question, the, the other areas um, in the... In the environment, we actually think that you can do it. You don't need to tax. You can achieve the... You basically have to do three things in the environment. You have to uh, restore biodiversity. You have to produce enough food. And you actually have to get the land to net negative. Net zero is not enough on land because there are still industries uh, such as uh, travel, steel manufacture that are going to need the land to mop up carbon emissions. And we think you can get that that three things, net negative, biodiversity positive, and enough food by using, as the government is planning to do, the common agricultural money for paying public money for public goods um, and doing that with intelligent regulation. But it only works if you get your trade policy right, because if you, you could create a kind of perfect system here and then just import very cheap beef from Brazil which basically you're exporting your carbon emissions uh, and your environmental harms abroad. And we're in a very interesting position at the moment because we had a Secretary of State and Liz Truss in trade who really just wanted to get the free trade deals done. And it was a kind of Brexit as the objective of Brexit as being free trading. We've now got a Secretary of State, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who has been involved in COP, who has a farming constituency who I think 
sees Brexit as what is it that we value and achieving what we value. And depending on those two things, I think you might begin to see a very different uh, attitude towards the trade deals um, coming out of, I hope so anyway, coming out of uh, the Department for International Trade. In, in terms of the the role of government in getting us to eat more healthily, we're looking at taxation. How, how effective can public bodies be in persuasion? I think you use the term in your report, uh, nudging us to, to better behaviour as well. And, and do you see a role for additional regulation? And you said you, you, made, you made, the, in a sense, the classic economist case for tax as opposed to banning and compulsion. Um, do, do you see a role for banning certain things, compelling certain things? Not so much in banning. So I think there are two things that need to happen. We live in a country where we uh, more than 50% of the food we eat is kind of ultra-processed. Um, that's way higher than Italy or France or countries that hold on to their to their food culture. And part of what we need to do is we need to change our food culture. We need to encourage more cooking from scratch, more eating vegetables, fresh ingredients. But at the same time, that is a very long transition. And the tax, as I see it, makes the processed stuff less bad for you. But on that cultural transition... I think there's a huge role for education, and there's a big package that, that we recommend in education. And interestingly, education is, if you, go, if you ask a, a libertarian or what the libertarian might call a nanny stater, they all say education is important. And yet it is never, because of the way government is structured, having good food in schools and a good food education is never on the top 10 of the to-do list of the Secretary of State. So that is something I'm trying to kind of unpick at the moment in government. So I think there's a, a huge role there in equipping the next generation with the skills to enable them to, to look after their bodies and, the, and to feed their families well. And the other area is the government, about 5% of all of the calories that we eat in this country are bought by the government. Um, and, and, and that, if you look at government changing, that could significantly change the supply chain. And the example I always think of there is McDonald's and Freeway and Jegs. So the EU had set a uh, a target for when countries in the EU should be having more than 60 or 70% free-range eggs, can't remember the exact target. And we were moving quite slowly. And then McDonald's decided to make all its eggs free-range in its supply chain. And England, and it did it in England first, and England massively accelerated. We hit that target because suddenly all the farmers were making free-range eggs. We worked out how to do them cheaper. So I think the government's 5% spending could actually, if they changed it, just change what, what's available to other people in the supply chain, enable us to accelerate the, the transition. Kate, you've, you've, you've looked not just at um, the impact of taxes, but you've looked at some other regulations, haven't you? And for example, the impact of adjusting or regulating when uh, and how firms can advertise, and indeed the impact of things like the five-a-day target for fruit and veg. I mean, how effective can those sorts of policies be? Yeah, so actually, just as Henry was saying, that was making me think about this, again, this coordination idea and the fact that actually a small number of firms can really have quite large impacts on the 
food consumption of the population. So actually, we looked at something a few years ago that that was about government's aim or strategy to reduce the amount of salt that we eat. And this was kind of a two pronged approach. So on the one hand, they worked with industry to introduce a series of targets, essentially to uh, reduce the amount of salt that's in the products that contain the highest salt. So bread, a lot of sauces and cooking ingredients, these kind of things are a a range of targets across across different foods. Um, And then at the same time, they also had an information campaign that was emphasizing to people the dangers of eating too much salt, where it comes from and so on. And we did an exercise to essentially try and disentangle these two different effects. Because what you see is that over this period, there was a big decline in the average saltiness of the foods that people were buying from supermarkets. But actually, that was entirely driven by what firms were doing to uh, reduce the salt content of their products. And actually, the sort of switching uh, from consumers really didn't have a, a big impact. So that's not to say, of course, information. And I think education is hugely important, especially for children and, and sort of teaching them how to cook and what a healthy diet is. In that case, we didn't find that it was particularly influential, whereas this sort of targeting industry was quite important. And actually, again, kind of touching on the inequality point uh, was particularly good at reducing the the salt content of the groceries bought by the poorest households. Again, sort of people who may be a bit less receptive, some of the information campaigns. In terms of advertising, that's obviously a huge, hugely sort of important part of a lot of the uh, promotional activity that food manufacturers and retailers do. And so we've had for for quite a few number of years now, the, the advertising of junk foods on children's television has been banned. And actually, Henry's comment about things being gameable, I think this was another good example of this, where you had things like there were cutoffs as to how healthy the food could be in order to be advertised to children. And you saw that, for example, so McDonald's did a lot of ads that featured only carrots in their, uh, in their adverts. Um, and there was also things like Kellogg's created this cereal or say created that happened to have a new cereal product called Kellogg's Cocoa Rocks that were somewhat similar to another another uh, chocolatey Kellogg cereal uh, but happened to just fall below the threshold for whether or not they could be advertised to children and so you know firms do respond to incentives Actually, you know, the evidence on the effectiveness of that particular advertising ban is that it didn't, it's not really changed the amount of advertising that children are exposed to, because a lot of the times they're watching television at, you know, on non-children's television. I think that particular policy hasn't sort of dramatically changed the adverts they've seen. I mean, if we were to move to something much stronger, you know, banning junk food advertising pre the watershed is is sort of one possibility. That obviously is likely to have a bigger impact, at least on the adverts that people see. Now, of course, the big question is, does that translate into a reduction in in purchases of, of unhealthy stuff? And I think Again, the evidence here is a little, it's its a little unclear. It probably will have some effect. But one confounding factor is that firms can also choose to change their prices. So when, they, when you restrict how much they can advertise, they also might respond by changing how expensive their products are. And potentially, if they make them cheaper, then that could actually sort of offset the impact of advertising on the amount that people choose to buy. 
I think that, I mean, both what you said there and what Henry said earlier on, I think is a very important reminder to us all that um, it can often be very complicated making effective policies in some of these areas because you, you may think you've banned something but um, uh, or regulated something or even taxed something and uh, different behaviour than you expect pops out of the other side. Um, Henry, I mean, you, 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 you um, produced your you know, fantastic report, and it's a, it's a big and detailed one with plenty of recommendations. And it's got quite a lot of positive things to say in there about how the food industry is keen on um, change, but in a sense, doesn't feel like it's got the uh, correct structure or system to work in to give it the incentives to do that there's a there's a sense from everyone that we do need change and as you as, as you say in the report perhaps particularly post covid and the the, the the knowledge that um particularly if you were unhealthy or overweight to start with you were more at risk so there's quite a lot in there that suggested you were somewhat optimistic at least I mean, how, how optimistic are you now about um how, how we're doing on this whether the government is taking this forward whether we are in fact en route to a more sustainable, healthier, more environmentally friendly food system? On the environmental side, I am very optimistic. I think all of the all, all of the policy levers are in place now with the environmental land management scheme, the repurposing of CAP and the, uh, the, the proposed new regulation. The question is, that will be a big transition for farmers and for the land. And obviously, if there's a big transition, there'll be winners and losers. And therefore, there is always the risk that the ambition over time gets re- reduced. Uh, but it's it's in place. I think I have sensed, a f- since the Prime Minister uh, went into hospital with COVID, there has been a fundamental change. And I've been working in this space for a long time now, but there's a real fundamental change across government. I think that the the junk food cycle, this idea that there is a link between the profit incentives of companies and the health outcomes, that that needs to be tackled directly, is now pretty much omnipresent. The question is, it's very frightening then. What, you know, if you're not going to, the tax looks, you know, what happens if companies can't reformulate? What happens if it puts prices up? All that is worrying for a government. And then if you can't, if you don't do that, what is what is your, how are you going to break that cycle? And I think that, I think that we are miles ahead of where we were five years ago. So I am, you know, I'm pretty optimistic, actually, to be honest, on, on all of these things. I think it's, it's very interesting that, that this, you need... Your job as a as someone who does a review, you need to create a narrative and you need to try and change the way people think about the system. And then you need to make sure that everyone inside and outside understands that. But then when specific policies get implemented, there's a kind of strange, uh, you know, there has to be there's a combination of various different things. And it could, I think, with the with the kind of taxation of of sugar in particular, I think that will happen. The question is when and by which government, but it is it is clearly going to happen at some point because uh, there's really you know, there is there are no downsides from it. So the question is when.
what would be your number one message to government at the moment? What 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 what's the next thing? What what would you like to see them do um, within the next year that would really give you, you know, even more optimism and confidence about things going in the right direction? Actually, I think the single most important, the the, the biggest problem there has been over time is that you've had and trying to get this solved is that you've had different government departments pulling in different directions and the food system itself has had different government departments have had different objectives and i actually think there's slightly wonkish but there's a there's a series of legislative things similar to the climate change committee where the government needs to build in in law a set of targets on the food system and a regular process for reviewing them because that really has worked well for the for climate change and what has happened in the past with these kind of reports is that you've had someone do it and a few things have happened but nothing kind of systemic and i really think you need that legislative backbone to keep the momentum up and stop it you know someone else having to come back and do the same thing again in five years time that's actually a really interesting um, perspective. Actually, we are recording this on the day that the government has just produced its net zero strategy, which um, came in part as a response to a request from the Climate Change Committee that Henry's just referred to, and indeed was, I think, rather importantly led from the Treasury and actually getting that central coordination within government for something which, as you say, is very much a cross-departmental, cross-government issue, and which um, is often not, you know, often people think is important, but it's often not right at the top of their agenda in any individual bit of government is, I think, your right, absolutely crucial. It's something that's very difficult to measure in the way that we economists normally measure things in terms of prices and policies and all of these kinds of things. But I I think that certainly rings true. It's probably uh, time to bring bring this to a close. So thank you, Henry. Thank you, Kate, for a fantastic, absolutely, absolutely fascinating discussion and conversation about uh, where we are um, on food and what government needs to do and how important that is. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, and please uh, do join us again for the next edition of the IFS Zooms In. To see all of our work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk and to further support our work, consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.